Well, we're at the end of our summer series called The Good Life, and this has been based on the writings of, of the Apostle Peter that we find in 1 Peter. And living the good life is how followers of Jesus live in a world that often feels like it's headed away from God rather than towards him. And we've covered a lot of stuff. First Peter begins talking about the living hope that uh, is only found in Christ, about living holy lives that honor God, of seeing ourselves as part of something bigger, of part of God's people. He actually uses a, a phrase there that's often repeated among churches, Protestant churches like ours, that we're a priesthood of all believers. Then we moved on to cover what it means to live godly lives in a very ungodly world, to be good people and good citizens in our communities. We talked about how Christian families function with love, respect, that they are mutually supporting and honoring of each other. We talked about how enduring suffering while doing good or enduring suffering while being associated with Christ, how a follower of Jesus might do that. We spent the last couple weeks here in August learning to think more like Jesus, that love really does cover over a multitude of sins and to be motivated by a desire to serve God, remembering that he sees everything. He sees everything, and he gets the last word. So Peter's whole letter is designed to get the followers of Christ living in what is really modern-day Turkey right now, or Asia Minor in that area, to remain faithful, obedient to God and their callings to serve him, and to be good citizens who will in no way damage Christ's cause through really bad behavior. So the same could apply, for, uh, apply to us today. How can we remain faithful? How can we be faithful to the gospel so that our society will see and experience God's glory rather than be distracted by some of our behavior? Well, that's where we turn today. Even in the midst of challenges and hardships, this is possible. And so we're going to close uh, the, the letter here, chapter 5, with verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, the reason we read the Bible is because God still speaks to us through his word. And it's through the Holy Spirit that God connects to our individual life aspects and the moments of our lives. But it's always important to understand the kind of historical setting or context for what we read in Scripture. And there are some passages that kind of need no explanation. This is one of those passages. And yet, there's still a lot here. I mean, you can read that and go, well, I don't know. I mean, how did it hit you? Did you kind of go, yeah, I know. Or was there something in there that jumped out and grabbed your attention? 
I mean, sometimes that's the Holy Spirit kind of prodding you like, hey, you should pay attention to this. And you read over it again and reflect on that. Maybe it connects to an aspect of your life, an attitude that you have, a behavior, a, a thing that just happened. That's how the Lord speaks to us, through his word. And so even though you can look at this passage and go, well, there's not a whole lot there to unpack, there's some huge insights that can come to bear on our life situation 2,000 years removed from Peter. You may recall last week, the first five verses of chapter five were directed towards elders and younger ones in the church family. And this was in addition to addressing the whole, uh, so who he's talking to there are leaders and everyone else in the local church. And he used this kind of age, I mean, he is talking to elders and younger ones too, but he's really talking about leadership in the church and those who are following their leaders. Um, what gets really wonky as we try and like translate this into our day and age is the less than perfect, uh, I guess, experience or ideas that we have in, in, uh, both personally and in our culture when it comes to authority, when it comes to um, power in our relationships, our organizations, our society. When we start to read about that or think about that, we automatically shift into our own experience. And a lot of times that's hugely influenced by things that are not God as much as they might be influenced by God. And so the way that we experience power and authority often falls along very predictable patterns and hierarchies. And I realize that in any group, people have to make decisions, right? And people have to follow those decisions. Otherwise, they're going to be nothing more than a group, right? Just a loose collection of individuals. But how that's done and how it looks doesn't have to follow the same tired patterns that we see each and every day. Maybe we see them at our work, but we definitely see them in the world around us. You know, leaders who rely on saying, I'm the boss, just go and do what I say, right? Those people don't end up being the boss very long, right? I mean, positional authority is real. Sometimes you have to rely on that, but it's way more powerful and efficient and better in every way to rely on relationships that you've built with one another. Those who are being led, followers, you know, all of us are followers, right? Even if we're in leadership positions, there's someone that we're following. And it's so easy for us just to believe that we know better. Uh, you know, so-and-so has it wrong. If they just did this, it would be better. Um, you either have that kind of attitude that, hey, you know, I can do it better, or I'm just going to go and do what I want, turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to whatever leadership is saying. Groups that operate that way predominantly are just doomed to be a collection of individuals. And Peter says to this group of Christians, hey, let's not do it this way. Let's be different. Let's find leaders that put this on the screen for you, care for God's flock with all the diligence of a shepherd, not because you have to, but because you want to please God, not calculating what you can get out of it, but acting spontaneously, not bossily telling others what to do, but tenderly 
showing them away, the way. And then he says, let God's people be people who submit themselves, meaning they follow and support their leaders. That means we check our ego and self-interest at the door. Hard to do. But we have to remember that we're in this together. Together. How can God's people today survive in a world that seems to be rapidly changing and getting further and further away from God? Another way to say that, more and more secular with each generation. Well, we're going to do that the same way Christians did 2,000 years ago. The Christians that Peter wrote to. And the first way that we're going to navigate this world is that we're going to live in humble trust. Peter says in chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Uh, That's a a second person plural. He's basically saying, all you all, be humble. He's talking to the elders and the youngers. He's talking to the leaders and the followers. He's saying, everybody, humble yourselves. Another way to say that would make yourself low. Humility has been a cardinal Christian virtue since Jesus who modeled it for us. We take it for granted that, oh yeah, that's the right Sunday school answer, right? First we say Jesus and then the second thing we say is humility. Humility, right? It wasn't always that way. In fact, the Greeks, Romans, even, even the Hebrews, like antiquity didn't really, I mean, they might have thrown humility in there as kind of that, one of the side things, but it wasn't the major focus of like, no, you need to be humble. This is something that Jesus himself and his followers, after, after Jesus was gone, they're like, you know what Jesus was? Jesus was humble. We should be that way too. And so Christians, I mean, everyone thought that was just weird, right? We probably still think that's kind of weird, right? How many of us like being humble? We'd rather that Jesus didn't say, or Peter even, to tell us that we should be humble. Because we all have egos. We all want to be in charge. We all want on some level to be noticed, to be in control, to be respected, which are okay within measure, but we often want more, 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 more. Peter says, no, check yourselves. Check your ego at the door. He says, all you all, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And the word for clothe has a very particular, I mean, maybe it's even a peculiar meaning here. It literally means tie, tie it on. And it's specifically talking about a certain article of clothing that slaves, indentured servants, and oddly enough, like people who work with livestock, they would put on these aprons to, because they're going to get dirty and messy. And so they're going to kind of protect themselves, get ready to serve. They would tie on this apron. That's what he's saying here. Clothe yourself. Tie that humility on. Get ready to serve. Therefore, humble yourselves. Make yourselves low under God's mighty hand. You know, when I was little, I remember holding my dad's hand. Right? Remember that? 
And my dad was a farmer. He grew up on a farm. He, he was a farmer. And so I always remember it, it, it actually kind of hurt. Right? I mean, his hands were rough. Like, here's an example, because everybody's like, oh, yeah, the farmer has tough hands. No, it's like a lifetime of, of doing things that you constantly get cut and hurt and whatever. Like, they just, all that, it becomes one giant callus. If, if, we, were, um, if we were building a fence, most of us would put on gloves, right, if we're going to be digging for a while. My dad didn't need gloves, okay? He wouldn't get blisters, and uh, for those of you that have that background, you're like, oh, yeah, you just, it, they're just hardened. And so I, would, I remember holding my dad's hand, and it actually kind of hurt, right? But they were muscular hands. They were tough hands. And I was really fortunate to have a great dad. I felt safe, confident, and at ease when I held those powerful hands. Well, the same held true for the people of Israel. As they experienced God's provision, God's protection, his power. They had this wonderful imagery of God's hand being with them or upon them or over them. And there's this deep Old Testament imagery associated with God's hand. Uh, It was his hand that rescued them. As they look back on being rescued out of Egypt, they're like, well, that was God's hand. Likewise, when God's people strayed from his ways, it was God's hand that brought judgment through the Babylonians. You know, as they were sitting in Babylonia, they're like, what just happened? They're like, it was God's hand working through a foreign power that executed his judgment upon us. Um, Christians recognized this. You know, it was the Lord's hand that was with Jesus. I mean, it's just unmistakable. How could he... All oh, these work, these miracles, the power that, that seemed to be at work around Jesus, what was that? It was his hand. The apostles could perform signs and wonders in Jesus' name because of the Lord's hand. God's hand is mighty. God's hand is powerful. And we can put ourselves, we can submit ourselves, we can duck under, make ourselves low, under God's mighty hand. Scripture is full of this encouragement. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Exodus 15 verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God and I will exalt him. Ephesians 6, 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And lastly, Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I mean, we need to hear this, right? Do you need to, do you need to hear this this morning, today? God hasn't abandoned you, forgotten you, left you behind. No. He's still there. His mighty hand is still over us. He's with us. He's mighty to save. He alone can rescue us from whatever darkness we might face in this world. 
And rather than take matters into our own hands, because we all get frustrated, God, you're not moving fast enough, at least fast enough for my, your timing is terrible, God. Rather than taking matters into your own hands, put yourself under God's mighty hand. And as Peter writes, in due time, he will lift you up. He's saying, wait for it. Wait for it. You know, I was reading a a commentary on this passage this week, and one of the commentators uh, made a really interesting observation, which I wouldn't have, like, automatically gone, oh, yeah, I guess you kind of could take it that way. He was saying in the, the world that we live in now, you know, we just get, we just want stuff to happen, right? And God wants you to prosper. So he's going to lift you up means, oh, eventually you're going to get that job promotion. Eventually you're going to, things are going to turn out rosy for you. You're going to be materially comfortable and successful. I mean, that's what it means. God's going to lift you up. Maybe not. Tempting to think that way. No, you have to remember that Peter was writing to people who were experiencing major hardships, suffering because of their faith in Jesus. He wanted them to remember the bigger picture of God's sovereignty over all things. And then he gave them some really great advice. He said this, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter quotes the Psalms, actually, Psalm 55. If you go back and read Psalm 55 where it says, cast all your care on him, you'll see that Psalm 55 is about a God who will never permit the righteous to be shaken, who will eventually bring justice to the earth. That fits the situation of his readers, but it also speaks to us today. Cast all your care upon him. That was a a really popular worship song at my church when I was 10 years old. And maybe some of you have sung that one too. Uh, I can still probably break out into the chorus even though I haven't heard it in years and years. But cast all your care upon, yeah, Jason wants me to break. Well, then do it, right? No. I had a concert last night and my voice is feeling it. Excuses, excuses. It's based on the King James Version, cast all your care. So, you know, we have in the NIV, what is that? Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Well, the song was based on the King James. And as I was looking at that verse this week, I realized I, I had it kind of wrong. I always thought that it was cast all your cares, plural, upon him. But the King James actually just says, singular, cast your care upon him. And I thought, well, it makes so much more sense, right, to say cares, because I have multiple problems that I need help with, right? Not just this big in general, cast all your care upon the Lord. That's the kind of stuff that keeps me awake at night. We lay awake worrying about all sorts of very important stuff, like, am I going to get that project finished in time? Am I going to wake up in time tomorrow? Uh, uh, What am I going to wear? Will I get invited to that get-together that some of my friends are having, or will I be left out? 
Why is that person at work so mad at me? Why don't they like me? And again, am I going to sleep through my alarm? You have all these anxieties weighing upon you, mixed in with a few deeper concerns. Like, is my mom going to get better? Uh, will, will my son or daughter finish all their schoolwork in time? What's really happening at work? Am I going to have a job in six months? I mean, there's all these undercurrents, right, that are just beneath the surface that we have. And what this is talking about in casting our care and even our cares upon the Lord is it's that anxious fear, the stuff that is out of our control. I mean, that might be the care. But it's also talking about the specific responsibilities that we have, that we've taken on, the cares in casting those, giving those over to the Lord. Jesus famously said, Matthew 6, verse 25 through 27, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or about your body, about what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Well, take note, the word worry is the same word that Peter uses in chapter 5. And Jesus is challenging this mindset. I mean, Peter's challenging this mindset that we have that, oh, if we just make enough money, if we just put enough away, we can be self-efficient, self-sufficient, and we don't have to worry right? It's all going to be taken care of. Life is going to be comfortable. Life is going to be good. And we all know that's just an illusion. God's the only one that we can truly rely upon. Jesus invites all of us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. We know that we can turn to Christ, that he can carry our burdens. And when we feel like the burden and when we feel that burden, we can pray as the Apostle Paul tells us to in Philippians, that the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Again, anxious in that passage is the same word here that Peter uses. When we're anxious, the temptation is always to turn towards ourselves. What am I going to do? That's self-rescue. Don't do that. Instead say, maybe I can't do anything. There might be something I can do, but ultimately it's God. The word cast literally means to give the responsibility to someone else. This is how we do it. When we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, like oh, all these big things out here, I don't know what's going to happen, Lord. We don't just sit there and no, the battle is like, oh, all these things that keep me awake at night or that pop into my mind, and when they do, I'm going to remind myself. I'm going to give God the response. I might even say it. God, you're responsible for that, not me. Take it away. Here you go. Cast all your care upon the Lord. That's the first way Christians today, just like Christians 2,000 years ago, can survive in a world that doesn't know it needs God.
The second way, there's actually three ways, and I'll work through these quickly. The second way is to be vigilant. Vigilant. Be vigilant. Peter says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Peter says, pay attention. Wake up. You know, in our well-educated, materially successful world here in the greater Seattle area, the idea that the devil is out there prowling around like an eye, a lion that would probably garner a few laughs at work, wouldn't it? Like, really? You believe that stuff? But I'm always surprised by how openly people share. I mean, some, uh, especially when you get them alone, but sometimes in groups, about their experiences with, like, dark, sinister forces or the evil that exists out there, even though they're like, well, but evil isn't near me, right? And I always think, well, if evil is out there, why can't evil be here? But I don't want to freak people out. No, the devil is real, the enemy. He's working against us. Peter's words apply to us today, even like they did 2,000 years ago. Pay attention, wake up. The Bible describes Satan activities like this. Uh, he can tempt us to sin. He can accuse us before God and make us doubt our standing with the Lord. I mean, that's a really common one, right? It's that voice in the back of your head that's telling you that you're not good enough, or God doesn't love you, or you don't deserve it. Uh, Satan also opposes God's will, and like he's always working to thwart the work of God, especially the work that we're involved with. Uh, he can obscure our minds regarding the truth, um, he can instigate acts of idolatry, which for us in our world may not be some little statue that we bow down to, but we may bow down to our 401k account. We may put our allegiance and our faith and our trust and our, and our stock portfolio, whatever it is, those can be idols too. Satan's behind that stuff. Uh, Satan can blatantly dominate people to the point of demonization. I, I mean, I, I can't speak to that one. But I've encountered lots of missionaries who work in other places around the world that shake their head and go, yeah, that happens. Um, a biblical professor of mine, Scott McKnight, he talked about the way Satan works sometimes through the political and societal structures that exist in our communities. That's kind of scary to think about. But Satan's overall goal is to get Christians like us sidetracked, um, disillusioned, distracted from doing God's will. And Peter simply says, resist him. Stand firm in the faith. And then he says something hugely important. You're not alone. There's people all over here. This isn't just you experiencing this. There's people all over the world who are experiencing the same sort of thing. That should encourage us and bring us together. How can we be faithful to the gospel so that our society will see Jesus and experience God's glory? 
We live in humble trust under his hand. We cast our care on him. We remain vigilant to all the enemy's schemes. And finally, we remember God's grace. And the God of all grace called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, will humble, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. It's God's grace. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But he's freely given us access to him. God wants to live inside of us through his Holy Spirit Give us a taste of the resurrection life that is to come because this life that we know now is temporary and God is eternal. His grace can sustain you, can sustain me through the most difficult of times. And remember, God always gets the last word. To him be the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Lord, this life is all we know. And we get lost in it. Even those of us that know you. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to turn and repent, to pay attention, to come back towards you, Lord. Help us to remember that this life is temporary, but you are eternal. And the gift of life that exists in you, that we can, we can experience a taste of that even right now, goes on with you forever. Help us keep that perspective, Lord, as we have trouble, as we encounter hardship, as we really do suffer from time to time, Lord. Help us to remember that you are there. Help us to put ourselves, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand to cast all of our cares upon you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.